most wonderful of letters, um, the Apostle Paul's magnum opus, if you will. You're starting a new chapter, Romans chapter 13. And this is still a further development, a further extrapolation, a further laying down of what was introduced back in chapter 12, where Paul makes it clear there are two paths, there are two ways of thinking, there are two mindsets at war with each other. And we have to present ourselves as living sacrifices. We have to guard ourselves from being conformed to the thinking and ways of this world, and the solution is to be transformed through the renewal of our mind. Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and so two weeks ago, we saw God's will for the church, serving each other, loving each other, using our gifts, not being proud or haughty. And then last week, we saw God's will of the renewed mind dealing with vengeance, dealing with repaying evil for evil, and how instead we are to leave it to the wrath of God and to return kindness upon our enemies and reap coals on their head. Now, some see the shift in, in Copic to chapter 13 as a little abrupt, but it really fits quite well. Yes, he's gone from dealing with our relationship to the church to dealing with our relationship to the world, but now he goes to government. But the linking thought is the one of wrath and judgment. At the end of chapter 12, we're told we are not to repay. It is not for us. That's not our responsibility or prerogative. It is not our jurisdiction to meter out wrath. But in chapter 13, we are introduced to something which God has ordained to meter out wrath, that God has instituted to repay. Let's read the first seven verses of chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is a very difficult passage for us to wrap our heads around. This is a very it's a very plain passage, but a very difficult passage. One of the commentators I was reading, Doug Moo, 
made this observation. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1-7 is the history of the attempts of men to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. It's plainly obvious what this passage says, and yet it's very difficult to hear. Very difficult to hear. And so we're going to look at it in three parts. Being subject to the government, God's purpose for government, and pay what is owed to the government. And, and in helpful in doing this, we're going to use a, as a foil, Daniel. Um, we're going to be going back and forth to Daniel a little bit. Pastor Gary taught through the book of Daniel, and I think Daniel gives us a good illustration, a good model of how a Christian, a worshiper of the living God, conducts himself around sinful human government. How he, how he deals with his responsibilities to the living God, his responsibilities to the state. So that'll be a help for us. So let's first take a look at the first command, being subject to the government. The word subject just means to submit, to place oneself under. And Paul's command is, is straightforward and clear. He gives it twice in verse 1, and then again in verse 5. We are, every literally soul, every living being is to be subject, to place themselves voluntarily under the authority of government. The command's clear. It's a, it's a simple concept. We just don't like it. We don't like submission. We don't like it in any field, in any area. Nothing comes more naturally to us than to recoil when anyone would tell us what to do. No one had to teach this trait to my children. It, it came quite naturally to them. I'm guessing no one had to teach that to you. And it's for this reason that Paul has to instruct us. If this were natural for us, if we just naturally like to submit to government, there would be no need of this instruction. And remember, this, this sits upon 12 chapters of Romans. This isn't some moralistic teaching about government. This is built upon the foundation of the gospel, built upon the foundation of the truth that we were all in rebellion to the cosmic government of God. Traitors, to the living God, deserving of wrath, and that we are bought, we are purchased, we were pardoned, we were forgiven. He now owns us. And the living God tells us that we need to submit to the authorities and governments that are around us. It can only be done with a renewed heart and with a renewed mind. The world's wisdom, the model of the world resists this. And so it's not surprising to see that it takes the gospel, it takes the new birth, it takes a transformed mind to be able to do this. And, be, and before we go very far along this path, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this can't be absolute. There have to be some exceptions, and there are. And we will take a look at the exception first, simply so that it doesn't distract us from our study. Paul doesn't give an exception here, but there are exceptions, um, but they may not be what you think. Turn in your Bible to Acts 5, 27 to 29. Acts 5, 27 to 29. This is the one exception that I can find in the Bible. The, the context is the apostles have been arrested and beaten, and then they have this interview with the council. And when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. The, the one exception to this command is when obeying the governmental authorities would force us to disobey God. That can be one of two ways. The government can, can command us to do something that is in disobedience to God, or the government can forbid us from doing something God commands. And Daniel gives us some examples of this. You think about it, in chapter one of Daniel, after Daniel has been basically kidnapped, taken from Jerusalem, given to the head of the eunuchs, which strongly suggests that Daniel has become a eunuch, after that happens, he's supposed to be put on a regime where he's being fed the delicacies of Babylon, which include all sorts of foods that violate the food code. And so Daniel knows if he submits to eating this food, he will be in disobedience to the Levitic food laws. But what Daniel doesn't do is mount a protest or a revolt. Daniel doesn't start an insurrection. Daniel appeals. Listen to this in Daniel 1.8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. You see, even when you find yourself in the exception, even when you find yourself in that place where the authorities that God has placed in your life are commanding you to do something in violation to God's word, the proper attitude is still a submissive, humble attitude. This is still my authority. This is still the person that God has placed over me. My ultimate allegiance is to the living God, so I cannot obey you, but that doesn't stop you from being my authority. I will speak with you in respect. See, there are exceptions, and two more times in the book of Daniel, we get that. When Daniel is forbidden from praying to the living God, Daniel cannot obey this command. And so he's arrested and and thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to worship the golden statue. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace. But in each instance, there's no additional insubordination. There's no additional rebellion. At the point in which they cannot obey, they do not obey. And in every other point, they are submissive and respectful and model citizens. And what happens in all three instances is God shows up and fights for them. God shows up in amazing ways and vindicates them and works for them. You see, this, this is an overflow of last week's theme that you can fight for you or God can fight for you, but you're not gonna get both. You're not gonna get both. So that's the exception. And, and notice what the exception is not. Unjust governments, cruel governments, corrupt governments. Who, who knows who was in charge of Rome when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans? Nero. You don't get more corrupt, unjust, or perverted than that. Daniel was able to be a faithful subject to a pagan king who made a statue of himself and wanted people to worship it. A king who slaughtered whole nations, world conquest, and yet Daniel was able to parse out, here's the point where I can't obey, and here's the area where I can which means if you're gonna think you have an exception, you, you better have a verse handy. You better have scripture ready as to why you can disobey. And, and if you are gonna disobey, you still need to do it with the right attitude. Because point two, what we see is that God has instituted all authority. It's not because of who they are. That, that's the mistake. The mistake in dealing with authority is to think, I will give respect and submission to the authority to the level 
that they have earned and deserve it. That's not the argument Paul gives. Paul is well aware that we will have authorities in our lives that, from human speaking, do not deserve our allegiance, do not deserve our submission. And so he tracks it back to God. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And this, this isn't just true with government. This is true with all authority. This is what we teach our children why is it the children need to obey their parents? Because all parents everywhere are wonderful and worthy of obedience? No, the living God has said, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And there'll be days where Serena and I are poor parents with our children, and God says, because of who he is, not because of who we are, that our children need to obey us. God has instituted authority in marriage between a husband and the wife and the, and the roles and relationships there. God has created the authority in the workplace. Peter telling slaves and servants to obey their masters, not pleasing men, but pleasing God. Submission and authority in the workplace is something God has instituted, and God has instituted it in the church. The same set of words, submit, respect, keep showing up in these relationships, and the living God stands behind them all. God created the authority in the home. He created authority in the workplace. He created authority in the church. And he stands behind the authority of human government. And it's because of the living God and who he is. And not because of the imperfect authorities that we see that we obey. We've got to remember that. From a human perspective, rulers come to power through force or heredity or popular choice. But the transformed mind recognizes behind every such process the hand of God. Our Lord recognized this when he was being tried before Pontius Pilate in John 19. Pilate said to him in verse 11, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus is well aware, A, that Pontius Pilate is a coward and corrupt He's also well aware that the authority Pontius Pilate has has been given to him by his father. And so Jesus doesn't slander him. Jesus submits to the mockery of a trial that is given to him. In fact, many were trying to egg Jesus into a rebellion, egg Jesus into fomenting revolt. And he refused. He refused. God has instituted all authority. And, and that brings one point to consider because God stands behind all authority. And I was listening to a preacher um, make this point, Vody Bauckham, and, and he was challenging the men in this church saying, and I'll, and I'll challenge you, that husbands who want their children and their wives to respect them, who want their children and wives to listen to them, parents who want their children to obey them, employers who want their employees to respect you have no business, no business asking anyone beneath you to submit and honor you to a standard that you're not willing to give to those above you. Because the same living God stands behind it all. He gives all authority. There is no authority except from God. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we like. We tend to like the ones where we're in authority, and we tend to not like the ones where others are in authority over us. Because Paul goes on in our next point, therefore to resist authority is to resist God. See, if God, the logic's simple. There's a command, submit. There's a reason 
God stands behind all authority. Conclusion, to resist the authority is to resist God. And if, if you're not renewing your mind, if you're not bringing this to mind, it will be so easy to forget this and think that to resist is heroic, courageous. Um, there, there is a flag that called the uh, Gadsden flag, perhaps you recognize. It was first used in December in 1775. It's unmistakable, this flag. And I know that different organizations and different groups have used it, and my, and my point is not to condemn everyone who's ever touched this flag or made use of it, but I think it's a perfect representation of the heart attitude that Paul forbids. What's the point of this picture? It's a snake coiled up, ready to strike. The words, don't tread on me. What it's saying is, I've got rights, and I've got freedoms, and the second that I perceive you overstepping your jurisdiction, the second that you go beyond your authority, go beyond what you've got, watch out, because I will strike back. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to speak to different groups that have used this flag. I just think it's a wonderful illustration, a wonderful picture of the attitude in the heart, this, you know, I'll submit, and I won't like it, but watch out if you overstep your bounds. And, and Paul says to resist authority is to resist God. If this is going on in your heart towards the government, this is your heart towards God. That, that's the inescapable conclusion. If this is your heart towards the government, this is your heart towards God. Because God stands behind all authority. He placed it there. And yes, we live in a country where we have the right and the freedom to, to voice our opinions, to disagree strongly. There are policies like abortion that I strongly disagree with. And when I'm given the opportunity to, I will speak out in a clear voice how I abhor the practice but I need to do it in a way that is respectful, in a way that is submissive, in a way that is honoring. And I need to recognize that even if the guys that I want in office don't get elected, that God stands behind it all. You've got to understand this. There's no authority except what God has given. Every one of our elected officials, God has placed there. And therefore, to resist them is to resist God. To have that attitude of, I will not submit or I'll do it outwardly, but not inwardly. You know, like the little child that says, I'm still standing up on the inside, right? We can have that attitude. And we've got to recognize that if that's in our heart, then we are directing that attitude towards God. We are questioning his government. Lord, how dare you let this person be my political leader? Lord, you made a mistake when you let this person get into office. And I don't think we'd want to challenge God that way. But if we don't, think with a renewed mind, that's exactly what we're doing. The command is clear. There's one exception, only one. The command is clear, and we're called to submit. I'm not going to try to parse on every complicated ethical issue. The point is, unless, unless government's calling us to disobey God's word, we are commanded to place ourselves under it and to submit with the right heart, with the right attitude, and take advantage of your liberty. Take advantage of the opportunity that you live in a time and a place where the government wants your opinion, where you get a vote, where you get a say, 
or you can promote people with ideas that you like. That's wonderful. Use that. Use it well. Use it to the full. Use it with respect. So next we're to look at God's purpose for government. Paul goes on to say in verses three to four, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. And to see God's purpose in government, we've got to go all the way back to the institution of civil authority, back to Genesis chapter 9. Um, it may not jump out at you, but Paul's going to connect the thought of the government bearing the sword, and the place where we see God giving the sanction for that type of authority which really is authority that undergirds the state, the, the authority to imprison, to repay, and to punish. If the state didn't have that authority, no one would obey the state. And in, and in Genesis 9, after the flood, the Lord says to him, um, in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be your food, and as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, for God made man in his own image. And there you have the biblical institution of the right of the state to repay violence with violence, life for life. The state has the right to bear the sword because God has declared that it is right when man takes the life of man that by man his life shall be taken. It's the foundation for the death penalty. And it's really the foundational principle that, that gives government the right to do what government does. It's God's sanction on government. Jesus repeats this concept when he warns Peter after he's about to fight. Remember, Jesus is getting arrested and the high priest's servant Malchus comes up to grab Jesus and Peter lops his ear off. He's ready to make a last stand, right? He's ready to go down fighting. You're not gonna take my Lord. This is unjust. This is a travesty of justice. This is a mockery of the legal system coming to arrest this man. And Jesus says, put your sword down, Peter. What does he say in Matthew 26, 52? All who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Peter's about to commit murder. And, and Jesus tells him, look, Peter, if you, if you take this man's blood by your sword, your blood's going to be taken. Put your sword down, Peter. Put your sword down. So all government rests on the sanction and the authority of God. And then Paul goes on to make this radical statement that government really exists as God's servants and ministers, which is not the way we probably think of it. But he uses the language twice. First in verse four, for he is God's servant, literally diakonos, deacon. He's God's servant. And then down a little further, um, verse six, for because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God. There he's using actually temple servants language. The government are God's servants, they're God's ministers. And you say, well, Surely not the corrupt ones. Surely this only means the good, godly governments. It's not true. Listen to what God says about Pharaoh in Exodus 9:16. For this purpose I raised you up to show you my power, 
so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Or of Cyrus, king of Assyria, not a good guy. He is my shepherd, God says of Cyrus in Isaiah 44, 28. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Or of the pagan megalomaniac Nebuchadnezzar, the man who would call people to worship him as God. Jeremiah 25, 9. Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against those surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Human government cannot help but fulfill God's purposes. Now, God's design for human government is that they would do it willingly that they would see it as their goal to be servants of the living God, that they would see it as their duty to carry out his will. But whether they see that or not, it will be done. In his very act of rebelling, Pharaoh gave the Lord the greatest glory in being destroyed by the living God. Nebuchadnezzar was used by God to come and discipline his people, and after God had used him to do that, he turned around and disciplined Babylon with the Medo-Persians. And then the Assyrians and Cyrus. God laughs at the nations. He's not, your will, my will might be thwarted when the guy we want to get in office doesn't get in office. God in heaven, according to Psalm 2, laughs. Saying, I have set my anointed on my holy hill. God's will will be done. Our authorities will be servants of God. They will fulfill his purposes, whether they do it voluntarily or not. They're God's ministers. And that Paul can say this of Nero. Imagine viewing Nero as God's deacon, God's servant. That's what Paul's saying to Christians in Rome. That means our president, his cabinet, our officials are servants of the living God, whether they know it or not. They will fulfill God's purposes. He placed them there. Secondly, we see that they're there to reward and approve of good. That's what they're supposed to do. And it's so easy for us to focus on the negative, the things we don't like in government. And there are plenty of things that I don't like in our government. But think of all the good that's done. Think of the unprecedented liberty and freedom that we have. Just give you a comparison of the world that Jesus was born into. MacArthur makes this observation. Our Lord was born into a society where political corruption and autocratic rule were common. Merciless tyrants and murderous dictators were everywhere, along with human slavery. These were almost unchallenged norms. By some estimates, the Roman Empire of that day had three slaves for every free person. Although a vassal of Rome, King Herod ruled Palestine with autocratic cruelty. Remember, after the Magi came and deceived Herod, what he did? He became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. That's, that's a totally different world. That's a totally different type of authority than we've ever faced a political leader who on a whim can declare all the male children two years and under in this region are to be put to death and it gets done there is oppression in our land there is injustice in our land there is nothing like what they were dealing with in the first century 
just, just read a Wikipedia article on Nero. There's no comparison, none whatsoever. We live in a, a world where women have rights. They can call the police and the state will intervene if, if a husband is being abusive. We, we live with all types of rights. Slavery is outlawed. Make no mistake, our government is doing plenty of good in restraining evil. Oh, there's plenty more evil it should be restraining. Amen and amen. But on a world historic scale, the current government we live in is doing some of the best work in holding back evil and rewarding good. It's a servant of God for good. But not only that, it is to punish and execute vengeance. And this really is the tie-in from the previous passage last week where Paul says, don't you avenge, don't you pay back, make room for God's wrath and God's justice. And now we're learning that one of the ways that God executes executes his wrath and his justice is through the state. That's one of the purposes of government. We, li we live in a world that really has lost the notion of punitive consequences. We want all of our punishment, we want all of our prisons to be remedial, corrective. And, there, and there's something good to that. But there's also something biblical and right simply to the notion of wrath and punishment. And the government bears a sword and it doesn't do it in vain. God has given it that right. Hopefully the government will bear it well. It may not. I mean, you can just read the Gospels to see corruption in the false arrest, mock trial of our Lord and ultimate execution of him. The government is God's servant to reward and approve good, to punish and execute vengeance on wrongdoers. And Paul says, generally speaking, if you do what's good, you're going to have nothing to fear. But if you do evil, watch out. Watch out. God might meter his wrath through the state to you. Because remember, we just saw earlier, those who resist will incur judgment. One way or another, God is not going to be mocked. God is not going to be resisted. God is not going to be ignored. And if he loves you, if he loves his children, he will discipline them. And they resist him by resisting the government. And that brings up the question, well, what about when governments fail to do this? This is great, Paul. This is great, Jeremy, when governments are awarding and rewarding good and punishing evil. But what about all the times we've seen government not do that? We've seen it do the exact opposite. Well, I think the assumed answer the Apostle Paul gives is the same one he gave just a few verses earlier. Make room for the wrath of God. Get out of the way. It's it's an atheistic view that thinks we've got to necessarily fix everything. God in heaven sees. God can strike down a leader and raise another one up. Back in the book of Daniel, go, go to Daniel chapter 4. We'll see an example of this. The most powerful man of his time, Nebuchadnezzar, the world power conquering nation after nation after nation after nation exalted himself, patted himself on the back for all that he had done. And the Lord God brought him down lower than anyone you've seen. In Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar was driven out. He lost his wits. He was eating grass in the field. His hair grew long probably be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic today, but the Lord had judged him. 
The Lord's people in Babylon had honored him and submitted to him where possible, and the Lord judged Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, in Daniel 4, picking up in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can say to him, what have you done, or stay his hand. At the same time, my reason returned to me. The glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right. His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble Nebuchadnezzar has learned his lesson. My kingdom was given to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't take it. The living God has made me a ruler. The living God humbled him. The living God can deal with rebellious and evil leaders. And other governments can deal with them. But individuals should submit where possible and where not possible, disobey with humility and meekness. And so finally, Paul gets to the so what. He's got the basic command at the beginning in verse one, submit to government. He gives you a reason. Why should I submit? Because God stands behind all authority. And then a further consequence. And if you don't submit, you're going to get punished one way or the other. You're going to be judged. And then he goes on to help us explain what the point of government is. It's it's here for your good, ultimately. It's here as God's servants for good and to punish evil. So picking it back up in Romans 13, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So he's given us two reasons to submit to the government. One, you don't. You're going to get punished. The state will get you or God will get you, but you're going to get God. And secondly, for the sake of conscience, now that we've seen, now that we've been taught about God standing behind government, now that we know that there is no authority except from God, we recognize the sin, the offense to Almighty God in our resisting of the government. And so for the sake of conscience, and so that we don't get wrath and punished, we're to submit and obey. And Paul now moves on to some practical applications Specifically, to pay back what is owed. To pay back what is owed. And that's literally the word, is to repay. It's the exact same word Jesus uses when questioned on this point. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day were trying to trick Jesus into speaking against the state. It's very interesting. Jesus never does. He never condemns Rome. He never speaks against Rome. He'll deal with the hypocritical religious leaders. He'll blast them because they claim allegiance to him. They claim to be God worshipers. And he'll deal with them. But he never speaks a word against Rome. In fact, um, in Mark 12, they brought 16 to 17. 
asked him about paying taxes, and he said, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. They marveled at him. And literally the word Jesus says there, render, is repay. It's owed. There's a debt. It's an obligation. In fact, that's going to be the linking thought to next week's sermon in verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone. He's talking about paying what is owed. Render what is owed. For the sake of conscience. And the first thing we see as a couplet is taxes. Revenue and taxes. And what he means by those are just indirect and direct taxation. There's the taxes you pay every year. And there's the fees you pay when you purchase, when you buy gas. There's all the individual things. When you register your car. There's all types of fees, aren't there? And, and Paul says, look, just give them to whom what is owed. And, and I doubt there are many people in this room who, who don't obey this outwardly. But we know more than that. We know that to obey outwardly, but inwardly be grumbling, inwardly be angry, is, is not obedience at all. We teach Abner that obedience is all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Or to, or to back that up biblically, Philippians 2, 14 to 15 says, do all things, including tax paying, without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. So here Paul says, look, pay your taxes. And elsewhere he'll say, and, and do it without grumbling, do it without complaining, don't do it begrudgingly. God's instituted these people. To resist them is to resist God. To grumble in your heart to them is to grumble in your heart to God. See, that's where it starts to get challenging, isn't it? We're not likely people are openly defiant, openly in revolt, but inwardly, there's all types of grumbling going on. Inwardly, there's all types of eye rolling and heavy breathing and, 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 and it's rebellion against God stands behind the authority. It is. Jesus makes it clear. Pay your taxes. Paul says, whatever you do, do unto the Lord joyfully, gladly. Don't grumble. Don't complain. And then moving on to the second couplet. Respect and honor. And this is the same type of terminology used in every other structure of authority. In scripture, you're, you're to children are to respect and honor and submit to their parents. Wives to husbands, employees to employers. In the church, the same language is used of, of the leadership in the church. There's nothing new here. It's the basic concept of what authority is. And this, again, is the hard part for us because we tend to think if we didn't vote for them, then we don't need to honor them. I'll obey them, but I didn't vote for you. Right? And, and that is dead wrong. Again, if this is in our heart towards our leaders, you better watch out. You better not step over the line. You better not take my rights. You better not whatever. If that's in our heart towards our leaders and our government, then we're not in line with Scripture, and we're not in line with God. And, and we know it. We know it. But we chuckle about it, and we send the emails the cartoons, we tell the jokes. Well, I know I shouldn't say this, but, and we've got to see it for what it is. Sin and rebellion. And, I, and I'm making a point of this because this is, I think, probably the area, and I'm guilty of this too. 
By no means am I innocent in this, but this is probably the area where the church is weakest, and the outside world knows it. They know that we mock our leaders. They know that we pass the emails and make the cartoons and tell the jokes. And they look down on us for it, and they should. They're right to. Because God looks down on it. It is not the right attitude. We should be model citizens. Look at what God did for Daniel in Babylon as he honored his authorities, far worse authorities than you're ever going to deal with. Walking the road of where he could obey, where he couldn't obey, but always doing it with respect, always doing it with honor. And God blessed him, and God fought for him, and God worked mightily for him. Or you can do it yourself, and I wouldn't expect God to show up. You can fight for you, or you can have God fight for you, but you can't have both. I mean, think of what it would really mean to honor and respect our leaders, really, even as we disagree with them, even as we strongly disagree with them. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if I went down, if I told Abner, Abner, go clean your room, and I went down to Abner's room, and I saw this, you know, on the door. <laughs> there would be problems, right? Or, you know, you're, you're at work, and your boss comes in and says, hey, have you filed the papers yet? And you got this sort of flying over your desk. And again, I know that not everyone who uses this, that's what they mean. I just think it's such a wonderful picture of that heart. I'm getting at the heart here. Not this particular flag. I have no particular beef with this piece. I know different groups have used it. I'm not trying to speak to all that. I just think that picture, though, so instantly recognizable of I will fight for my rights. I will push back if you even nudge me is absolutely the antithesis of what Paul commands us to do here. It's the antithesis. We're to pray for our leaders. We're to bless those who abuse us. Bless and do not curse. The worse they treat you, the kinder you should be to them. Not the more emails, not the more jokes you should tell. The kinder you should be. I mean, isn't that the Sermon on the Mount? It's hard. It's really hard. And it takes a transformed heart by the gospel. It takes a renewed mind. It takes a remembrance that God stands behind all human government. But it is what we are called to. It is the standard that God gives us. And we have no permission, and we have no right to change it. None. To resist the authority is to resist God. So, we are now going to transition to communion. Um, I'd like to call the ushers forward for our offering first. We're going to do our offering, and then we're going to do communion. And we have not forgotten about the offering. And uh, then we're going to sing one more song. So if the ushers would come forward for our offering, we'll do the offering, and then we'll do communion. Let me pray. I'm going to pray for our leaders. I'm going to pray for our government. I'm going to pray for us.